beginning in Nehemiah 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of the king Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick? There is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. And I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad, when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire? Then the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I might rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, How long will your journeys be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they must permit me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem, and I was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were burned with fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall, and then I turned back and entered the valley gate, and so returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or any of the others who did the work. Then I said to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in waste, and its gates are burned. Come, and let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's word, that he had spoken to me. So they said, Let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, 
we his servants will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity now to turn to your word. And I do pray, Lord, that all of us, myself included, would approach it with the right heart and the right mind. Father, we know that this is not just an ordinary book. This is not just like something we would pick off the shelves of borders. This is the Word of God. It was not written by men. It was written by men who are inspired by God. It is God-breathed. Every word of it is profitable. And that includes the book of Nehemiah. And so, Father, we pray today, may we give it due diligence and due attention. I pray that you would uh, take over these proceedings right now. I pray, Lord, the Holy Spirit would fill me. Pray, Lord God, you'd help me to preach what I ought to today. Protect me from saying anything I should not. Help me to be bold to say what I should. And just use these words, I pray. Touch the hearts of these your people as you would have them touched. Father, some of us today need to be more serious about things, and I pray that you'd help us as we look at the, uh, the example of this man, Nehemiah. Lord, to, uh, to be just what we ought to be for you. Teach us today. Help us today. And then, Father, of course, if there's even one here today, in a crowd of this size, there may be one who doesn't know you as Savior. And I pray today, Lord, that somehow, some way, the Holy Spirit will take the words that are spoken and apply it to their hearts and help them to know they have a need. And help them to know that Jesus is the answer to that need. And that they can have eternal life in heaven if they will put their faith and trust in you today. I pray, Lord, if there's any that are lost today that they'll know their loss, they'll feel lost, they'll understand their lostness, and they'll be saved today. We just give this time to you. Use it. Glorify your name. Let there be no distractions. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we started a series on the book of Nehemiah. If you missed last week, I would encourage you to go out to our church website and listen to the, uh, the message from last week because it was introductory in nature and there were many things mentioned in that particular introduction, which we're not going to repeat, but which are very helpful to us in understanding where we're going with the book of Nehemiah. So uh, I would encourage you to do that if you missed last week. But today we want to continue in chapter 2, and I want to talk to you for just a few moments on the topic, please send me. As chapter 2 opens, we find that Nehemiah is still at Shushan at the palace, where we left him in chapter 1. He is still in the employ of King Artaxerxes as his cupbearer, and four months actually have elapsed. Uh, I realize that they don't use the same months we do, but uh, if you go and you study out with our calendar, it's four months have elapsed since he first heard of the despair that is taking place in Jerusalem. And we might ask ourselves, what's he messing around with? I mean, we talked in chapter 1 about how much he cared and how hardworking he was over the need What's he still doing here, handing cups of wine to the king uh, when he could be doing something about it? But I would suggest to you that during those four months, Nehemiah has not been idle. During those four months, he has been busy. He has been doing something. I don't think it's been wasted time. For example, I think that during this time, Nehemiah has been actively praying. If you go back to chapter 1 and look at verse number 4, we we read that when he heard the words, when he first heard about the the situation with the walls in Jerusalem and the in the, in the city of Jerusalem. He says, I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. That's not talking about a one-time prayer. That's talking about a continuous prayer. Verse number 6. 
He said, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel which we have sinned against you day and night. And so I would suggest to you that Nehemiah has been actively praying during these four months. We looked at his prayer. Uh, a good portion of chapter 1 is the prayer of Nehemiah. We didn't talk about it last Sunday, but we did talk about it a little bit during our Wednesday evening prayer meeting. And I think that the context of all of this supports that thought that Nehemiah didn't just pray once, but rather he was in a continuous state of prayer during these four months, multiple times, many days. I think it, it I think, I think it's implied, but I think we can say it with the accuracy that his prayer was fervent, it was sincere, and it was repeated. The Bible tells me that that's the kind of prayer God hears. And God answers. The prayer of a righteous person has great power, James 5.16 says. So he wasn't wasting his time, he was praying. And also during this time, he wasn't wasting time, he was also, I think, planning, actively planning, okay? He's heard that there's a situation in Jerusalem, and so now he's planning what can be done to solve that problem. And uh, what we see here in chapter 2 is that uh, the opportunity for him to talk to the king about this kind of sneaks up on him and slaps him in the face. But I think, as we look into it a little bit further, we'll find out, even though maybe he didn't intend for it to happen right then, Nonetheless, what came out then as a result shows us he had been planning, he had been thinking, he had been looking ahead to just this very thing. He had his request ready to trot out to the king. Verses 3 through 5 shows us that it's not something he, he was unprepared to speak. It, just, it was there. He had his needs all formulated. When the king said, what do you want me to do for you? In verses 6 through 8, he had a whole plan laid out. He said, I need this, and I need this, and I need this. He had been actively planned. And so I think it would be accurate to conclude that during the four months between chapter 1 and chapter 2, what had started as a deep concern in the heart of Nehemiah had worked its way into his brain, worked its way into his mind as a plan, and now it was just about ready to burst forth as an action. Obviously, he had determined it was not enough to just weep. We talked last week about his great caring heart. It was not enough to just weep about the need, or it was not enough to just even pray about the need. I think what we see here in the heart of Nehemiah is he had decided now, somebody must go. Somebody must do something about the need. And as we'll see, he had come to believe that that somebody was him. His determination and that decision that was on his heart and in his mind, I think is summed up in verse number 5. And verse number 5 is, is kind of our text for today. Verse number 5 says, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And I would paraphrase verse 5, as please send me. Now there are several different things that I, I would like to consider as we look down through this passage. We're going to concentrate on the first half of chapter 2 that Josh read this morning. Uh, but but three, three thoughts let me share with you that jump out at me. The first is in verses 1 through 3 when I see this thought. Nehemiah's heart showed up on his face. Nehemiah's heart showed up on his face. As I said, we still find here Nehemiah in the employ of King Artaxerxes. We still find him serving as a cupbearer. And as he is serving wine to the king, just as he has done hundreds, maybe thousands of times before, something completely different happens here in these verses that has never happened before. He walks into the king holding the glass of wine with a sad look on his face. That has never happened before. And look at verse number two. 
Verse number 2. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. And so I became dreadfully afraid. The king notices his sadness. The king comments on his sadness. Now that might not seem anything to us. It might seem like a ridiculously minor thing. I mean, does that sound bad to you? If you walk into somebody, if you walked into your boss with a sad look on your face, would it be cause for concern on your part? It seems ridiculous and minor and almost laughable to us, but it was not laughable to him. In that day and in that court and in that kingdom, you did not go into the king's presence with a frown on your face. You did not appear before the, before the king with sorrow of heart displayed on your face. You just didn't do that. To do so was a punishable offense. It was a serious offense. Uh, it's very possible that it was, it was even punishable by death. In Esther chapter 4 and verse number 2, we read where Mordecai, who a hundred years earlier had been basically in the same kingdom, a hundred years earlier, he was in great distress over the plot to kill the Jews. And it says that in that great distress he came even before the king's gate. For none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. So he could come up to it, but he couldn't enter into it because he was in sackcloth. Mourning, sackcloth, a long face, being sad, just simply was not allowed in the presence of the king. And Nehemiah's fear is a pretty good indication of just how bad an offense it was. He said he became dreadfully afraid. You might have a little footnote if you have a study Bible. That word dreadfully means very much. This is bad. This is not good. I have appeared before the king afraid. Now, or sad, Nehemiah appears to me in this book to be a very thoughtful and calculating man. We'll see that as we go throughout. And the more we learn about him, we're going to see that. And I do think that the four months that have elapsed since he first started Jerusalem state have been spent in prayer and in planning. And I've got to believe that he was looking for a time when he could broach this subject with the king. I think he was probably looking for an opportunity for that to take place. But here, this calculated and plotting and thinking and planning man, I think, let down his guard a little bit and allowed something to happen. He let a frown appear on his face, and suddenly it was upon him, and he had to deal with it. He let down his calculated guard just long enough for everything to come out in the open. And I don't know, I I see some applications in here that maybe speak to me. I I, I hope you'll see them as well. But I think one of the lessons there and that for us is this. If it's in our heart, it has to come out. If it's in our heart, it has to come out. Four months, he's kept this bottled up inside. He just couldn't keep it there any longer. It has to come out. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 and verse number 34, For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. If it's in there, you can't keep it quiet. You know, I don't believe, and I know know some of you would disagree with me on this, but I don't believe there is such a thing as secret Christianity. I don't believe it's biblical. I don't think it exists in the Bible. I challenge you to find me a single example in the Bible of someone who was able to keep their Christianity secret, or who would even want to. I just don't think it exists. How is it possible for something as mind-altering, soul-stirring, and life-changing as being born again to not show up on your face. How is it possible for it to not come out for other people to see? No such thing. And some of you right now are saying, wait a minute, what about Joseph of Arimathea? I know the Bible says that Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple. Yes, it does say that. Up until the time when he came out. Because he wasn't always a secret disciple. He was a secret disciple until he couldn't keep a secret any longer. And it came bursting forth and he had to go. And let it be known. 
John chapter 19 and verse 38, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave, and he came therefore and took the body of Jesus, and for that time on, the secret was out. He couldn't keep it hidden anymore. The concerns that Nehemiah had shown in chapter 1, the care that he had in his heart for his people and for his God and for their city, worked its way out of his heart and onto his face. It showed. And now, it was out in the open. And I would suggest to you that the lesson for us is if we really care about the things of God, about the needs of our loved ones for the Savior, about the cause of Christ in our world, about his kingdom, it will not and cannot remain a silent emotion buried in our hearts. It will show up somewhere, just as it did with Nehemiah. What do you say about Nehemiah? What is this it's on your face? It's his heart showing up on his face. He was busted. He was caught red-handed. He was caught in the act of caring. And so he shared his heart. He shared his heart with the king in verse number 3. Verse number 3, he says, I became dreadfully afraid, and I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire? Esther, 100 years earlier, had shared a similar concern, similarly fearing for her life to share such a thought with the king. In Esther chapter 8, and six, verse number 6, she said, How can I endure to see the evil that shall come unto my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? Nehemiah said the same thing. How can I help it when what's going on with my people? So the first thought today is Nehemiah's heart showed up on his face. The second thought is, Nehemiah's prayers reached God and the king. Nehemiah's prayers reached God and the king. Verses 4 through 6. Here we have a very tense moment. From a worldly perspective, this king had all the authority, all the power, everything was in his court. He had the power to help or to hinder Nehemiah in his plans, and he also had the power and the authority to punish him severely, maybe even to death, for daring to show this sad face in his presence. But one of the themes that comes out in Nehemiah, we'll see it over and over and over again in this book, is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. While the king had power, God had the ultimate power. And he moved the king however he wished. The sovereignty of God. Nehemiah knew it. He showed it in his response. Look at verses 4 and 5. Verse number 4, the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king. I love that. I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king. In other words, Nehemiah employed a dual attack here. A two-pronged approach. Pray to God and ask the king recognizing both uh, the parts that they both played. And we see that all throughout. Let's do a little Bible study. If you're still, still there in Nehemiah, let's just look down at verse number 20. And you'll see so many times Nehemiah had this two-pronged approach, God and man. Verse 20, I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us, therefore we his servants will arise and build. You see both sides there? God and man. Flip over to chapter 4, verse number 9. Chapter 4, verse number 9. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to God, and because of them we set a watch against them day and night. God and man. Chapter 4, verse number 14. I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. God will take care of us. Fight. Both sides. Verse number 17 of chapter 4. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other they held a weapon. I love that part. 
sword in one hand, trowel in the other. I've even heard a series of this uh, called the sword in the trowel because of that very thought. Verse number 18, every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built it. And the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And then verse number 20, wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. And so, I, I hope you see that. I hope you see the clarity of that. And there was this two-pronged approach. Nehemiah knew it. Nehemiah knew, yeah, the king is in authority, but God is in ultimate authority over him. And so he said, I prayed to God and asked the king. And an application comes to my mind from that as well. And that is this. God is ultimately and always in control. And isn't that an important thing for us to remember when it looks like our world is falling apart? Isn't that an important thing for us to remember when we're tempted to get stressed out by what we read in the news? I love America. But every sign that we see, every news article we read, seems to point increasingly to the decline of America as a power in our world. You know that. I'm sure you read the same news articles I do. Every day we hear gloomy economic reports about the American dollar and its diminished influence on the world stage. This one-time Christian nation no longer considers itself such. Just this past week, a federal judge ruled that Christian prayer was a jailable offense in Texas. I, I can't get over that. A jailable offense to utter prayers. As a matter of fact, he went so far as to say that if you said the word amen, jail. Astonishing. In America... Now, we could get stressed about such things. Such things could be cause of great concern to us if we didn't remember God is ultimately in control. And all these things are not surprises to him. You see, Nehemiah had that kind of balance. I prayed to God, and I asked the king. We need that balance in our lives. We need to understand and respect the king, but we need to rely on God. We need to recognize that the king is there at the will of God and to do the will of God just as our nation is there, at the will of God, as long as He wills it. won't be there forever, as long as He wills it. And it's there to do His will. Paul was so clear on this. He said, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God. And those that, have exist, those that exist have been instituted by God. So one application I see here is that God is ultimately in control. Another application I see in this little, uh, this little phrase from, from Nehemiah, you know, I... I, I Pray to God and I ask the king. Another application from that has to do with prayer. We've already seen that Nehemiah was a man of prayer because in chapter 1 we saw a great big long passage where he prayed a big long prayer. But here he prays again. He said, I prayed to God. I prayed to God. I can't imagine he had much time here. Can you? I can't imagine that, that he looked at the king and said, uh, interesting question, O king. Why don't you just hold that thought for a second? I'm going to go off and pray about my response to you. Do you think he had time to do that? Do you think he had time to take some people aside and say, let's have a little prayer meeting over here and work, work on this and take this? Is that what you think happened? He said, I prayed to God. What did he mean by that? He didn't have much time. He didn't have much time. The fact is, I think a prayer of only a couple words is every bit as powerful as a lengthy one. Lord Help me. It's often all you got to say. Lord, help me. And I think Nehemiah had learned that. I think Nehemiah was such a man of prayer that he had an open line of communication with God. You know, that's the way we ought to be. 
We ought not to have to get down on our knees, although that's a good thing to do from time to time, but we ought to have such an open communi- line of communication with God that we can just at any time shoot a prayer to heaven in a sentence. And that's what he did here. That's what he did. When he needed something from God, he just shot it right up there. On Wednesday evenings, we have prayer here. We usually, we try to divide up into groups, and lately the Lord is blessed, and we've had enough of a crowd that we could do that, uh, I think, just about every week. Try to divide up. And we, we, we try to pray, and, and some people pray vocally, and some people pray silently. And there's no problem with either. Either is certainly valid. But I believe, I've always believed, that there are some who choose to pray silently because they fear speaking up. They hear others pray. They hear others pray long, sometimes eloquent prayers, and they say, I can't compete with that. And so they sit there silently and don't pray. But you know the best prayers are the short prayers. And my soul has been more blessed on Wednesday nights when I hear some, somebody who maybe hasn't prayed before uh, finally screw up the courage to say something, maybe just a sentence, something like, Lord, thank you for your blessings in my life this week. Amen. When I hear something like that, I want to shout. I want the people with the big, long, eloquent prayers to be quiet. I want to hear that. Because that's the best. That's the best kind of prayer. And such shots toward heaven, I believe, produce results every single time. Just a sentence. I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, What do you suppose he said in that prayer? He only had a split second. A split second. I think he said something like this, God, help. I think that was it. And God helped. And God helped. You know what my favorite prayer is? I've shared this one with you before, but you know what my favorite prayer is? It's a fictional prayer. It took place on the old Happy Days show. Remember that? There was an episode where Richie Cunningham, it was coming up on Thanksgiving holiday, and Richie Cunningham learned somehow that poor old Fonzie had no place to enjoy Thanksgiving dinner. Do you remember Fonzie, the leather clad motorcycle riding tough guy? So Richie said, Fonzie, why don't you come have Thanksgiving dinner with us? So he did. Sat down to the meal, and Fonzie immediately picked up his pork and was going to plow into the food, like any heathen would do. And Dad Cunningham said, oh, we need to pray, ask grace, thank the Lord for our Thanksgiving meal, for his blessings. Fonzie, why don't you lead us in prayer? And Fonzie was completely and totally taken aback and dismayed, being what he was. And he looked around the table for a minute and just looked at every face. And then you see this look of serenity come over his face, and he just looked up to heaven and he said, Hey God, thanks. That's the best prayer I've ever heard in my life. And it was Fonzie. On happy days. A little shot to heaven. I love it. Nehemiah said, I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king. Well, so the second thing then is Nehemiah's prayer to reach God and the king. And the third and final thought I would share with you this morning, and really the main point of our message today is Nehemiah's caring became going. Nehemiah's caring became going. Verse number 9, then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. When Sanballat the Horonites and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. Then I went We have a theme for 2011 here at Friendship Bible Church, and that is Roots Down, Fruit Up. Roots Down, Fruit Up. And that theme is based on Isaiah chapter 37, verse number 31, that says, The remnant that is escaped to the house of Judah shall again 
take roots downward and bear fruit upward. And what we're trying to accomplish with that is we're trying to tackle topics and implement programs and things that will take us deeper in our walk with God, deeper in our relationship with Him, deeper in our relationships with His people, so that, so that, we will see more fruit in our lives, more souls saved, more lives changed, more sanctification, more holiness in every single one of us in our walk with Christ. When the roots go down, the fruit will go up. That's the thought. That's the point. Last week we learned that Nehemiah cared. Remember that? Cared about the destruction and reproach of God's people in God's city. We saw it in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse number 4. And we see it again in his heart, or we see his heart again in today's reading. In, in chapter 2 and verse number 3, he says, Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? It all started there. It all started with his heart when he cared. But here's the key. It's today's passage, I think. It would have gone nowhere if it stopped there. Nothing would have ever happened. It needed to go deeper than just caring. It needed to go beyond that. Nothing would have happened to the story that ended in Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse number 4. It had to get to Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse number 5. Something had to be done. Caring is wonderful. But it accomplished nothing without going, without doing. It's interesting, isn't it, the dialogue that took place between the king and Nehemiah in verses 4 and 5. The king said to me, what do you request? What do you request? Allow me to paraphrase. The king said to Nehemiah, You know, I see you have great concern about your people, Nehemiah. What do you want from me? Now, if Nehemiah had been like most American Christians today, his response would have been something like this. King, I want you to send somebody to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. King, you have great wall builders on your staff here at Shushan. I want you to reassign one of those wall builders to go to, to Jerusalem and deal with that problem so that my heart won't hurt anymore over the need of these many people. But that was not Nehemiah's reply. That would have been most of our reply. Send somebody. Nehemiah's reply. Nehemiah the cupbearer, which is a far cry from a wall builder, by the way. Nehemiah the cupbearer replied, I asked that you send me. Please, send me. Church, how our families would change if rather than praying, Lord, please send somebody to win my family. We pray, please, send me. Randolph would be one for Christ, I believe it, overnight, if we, the members of Friendship Bible Church, would stop praying, Lord, send somebody to Randolph. And start praying, Lord, send me. The ravages of Islam around this world would be silenced if Christians in little churches would stop praying, Lord, send missionaries, and would start praying, Lord, send me. Please, send me. And I wonder this morning, Christian, have you ever prayed that way? Have you ever knelt before God and said, I know that my gifts might not line up with the needs here, and not after all, I'm just up there, I don't know how to go to all... But the need is great. And you're a great God. Send me. Have you ever prayed that way? Last year we partnered with several new missionary organizations and new missionaries. We try to continue to build our mission outreach in this place. I, we believe in missions. We believe in the Great Commission. Going into all the world to preach the gospel to every creature. And I, I know some of you don't agree with, with that approach entirely. Some of you have told me so. You'll get your heart right one of these days when you get to heaven. 
and you see what the missions program has wrought. But nonetheless, we support missionaries. And one of the missionaries we took on last year was John Stavropoulos. You remember, he was almost a child. He was barely out of high school. He was the young guy. But he impressed us so. He impressed me so with his heart and how much he wanted to go. And I will never forget, after he had given his presentation here, one of you, and I don't remember who, asked him the question, how long is your commitment there? And he answered, my commitment is for life. Now, I've never, I've never gotten over that. Never. Just this past week, John Stavropoulos sent me an email. He had two words in it. Two words. In capital letters with an exclamation point at the end. It said, in Mozambique. He had finally arrived where he has been working all this time to get. And he was thrilled to death to be there. How many of us look at that beautiful missions display back there on the wall that Sue built for us and, and, and Ken built for us and others and, and, and maintain it? How many of you look at that and say, Lord, wow, send more missionaries to need this great. And how many of us look at that and say, Lord, please send me. Please send me. Why don't we pray that last prayer? You see, I don't think caring is enough. Caring needs to translate into doing. Caring needs to translate into going. James said faith, apart from works, is useless. And I would add to that that caring, apart from doing something about it, is useless as well. And of course, maybe that's our problem. Maybe some who name the name of Christ simply don't care. Or at least don't care enough. Some years ago, there, there is a large apartment complex that stands across the street from uh, Kent Ridge. Uh, assisted living. Most of you know right where that is. There's a large apartment complex across the street from that. Some years ago, I and another brother knocked on every single door in the, that apartment complex. Matter of fact, we did it multiple times because we ran a bus route through there for the church we were attending at the time and took kids to Sunday school. Saw some saved as a result. I will never forget this one door that I walked up to. I knocked on this door. And this middle-aged woman ripped the door open, obviously upset that she would be interrupted. She looked at me and said, what do you want? And I proceeded to tell her, and in my nicest way, what I was doing there. And then she snarled. I can't think of any other word to describe what she did. She snarled at me. This is what she said. I am already a Christian, and I'm not interested. Wham! Slammed the door. I've never forgotten her. I hope I never forget her. Because what a picture that is of the attitude of so many of us who name the name of Christ. Well, I'm already a Christian. I'm not interested. God, help us if that's the case. Hezekiah in the Old Testament was one of the great kings of Judah. He was a godly man. The Bible speaks eloquently of him and of his righteousness and of all the good things he did while he was king in Judah. But at the end of his reign, God sent Isaiah the prophet to him to warn him that the kingdom was about to be destroyed. The prophet told him that his kingdom would be captured and carried into captivity in Babylon, and then he said, nothing will be left. Those were his words. Nothing will be left. And do you know what Isaiah's response, or not Isaiah's, Hezekiah's response was? I think it's one of the coldest, most uncaring statements in all of Scripture. This godly man, Hezekiah, here's what he said in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 19. You can look it up. He said unto Isaiah, Good is the word of the Lord which thou hast spoken. And he said, Is it not good if peace and truth be in my days? In other words, who cares what happens to them? As long as everything is okay at my house. 
Wow. Sadly, some Christians just don't seem to care. But last week we learned Nehemiah was not in that number. Nehemiah did care. His heart was broken for the needs of his people. And he cared enough to do something about it. He said, please, send me. This past week, we buried our sister, Bonnie Robinstein. You know, Bonnie was one of the very last of the original Randolph Christian Church. There's only a few left now. Mike and Susie, Debbie, Jan, Jane, there's a few. Darlene and Richard, there's a few. Maybe a couple of others. I mentioned this in my remarks at at, uh, Bonnie's funeral, but I, I just feel like her church needs to hear it too because I think it's a legacy that she left behind. Do you know that Bonnie was one of only a couple of people in this church of 70-some who ever participated in our reaching Randolph one door at a time. Bonnie. And you know, the fact is, it was not because, if you remember Bonnie, it was certainly not because she was outgoing. Bonnie was one of the quietest people we had in the church. Most people probably don't know who she was because she was living here. She could go sit over there right, right behind you there soon and, and never say a word. I mean, if you didn't walk up to her, she was so quiet. It wasn't because she was gifted in that way. She didn't exactly speak up, but I don't think it was that she was particularly good at it either. I know that she was paired up with my wife, and Beth said she pretty much just could have tagged along and supported her and let Beth do all talking. You know what it was? She just simply cared. She cared enough to go and do something about it. Nehemiah said, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah to the city of my father's tombs that I may rebuild it. Please send me. Last week we closed with the question, do we care? This week I want to add in closing to that question, do we care enough to do something about it? Do we care enough to go? Will any among us this morning be a Nehemiah? Will any of us see the need, care about the need, and then say, please, sent me. Songwriter said, Hark, the voice of Jesus calling, who will go and work today? Fields are ripe and harvest waiting, who will bear the sheaves away? Long and loud the master calls, this rich reward he offers free, who will answer? Gladly say, here am I, send me, send me. If you cannot cross the ocean and the distant lands explore, you can find the lost around you, you can help them at your door. If you cannot give your thousands, you can give the widow's might. What you truly give for Jesus will be precious in his sight. If you cannot speak like angels, if you cannot preach like Paul, you can tell the love of Jesus, you can say he died for all. If you cannot rouse the wicked with the judgment's dread alarms, you can lead the little children to the Savior's waiting arms. If you cannot be the watchman, standing high on Zion's wall, pointing out the path to heaven, offering life and peace to all, with your prayers and with your bounties, you can do what heaven demands. You can be like faithful Aaron, holding up the prophet's hands. If among the older people you may not be apt to teach, feed my lambs, said Christ, our shepherd. Place the food within their reach. And it may be that the children you have led with trembling hand will be found among your jewels when you reach the better land. Let none hear you idly saying, there is nothing I can do. While the lost of earth are dying and the master calls for you, take the task he gives you gladly. Let his work your pleasure be. Answer quickly when he calls you. Here am I. Send me.